0: Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I'm Tyler Stanley, And I'm Gerhard Steuben. This is our third part of our read-through of St. Augustine's City of God. Today we're going to be talking about books five and six. As
1: we pick up from last week, from book four, um, in book five, Augustine is continuing his argument on why one, people abandoning the pagan gods isn't the reason why Rome has fallen into hard, onto hard times, and two, that the pagan gods aren't really worthy of worship. So he continues this argument in book five by starting with a place you might not expect, a big long argument about astrology and free will. Let's just get right to it, shall we? and I were talking before this podcast that it's interesting that this is the first uh, topic that Augustine is arguing against that's actually still believed somewhat um, in today's society. I mean, people, like, you can still get your horoscope in the daily news, but it's neither as prevalent nor honestly as philosophically coherent today as astrology was in the ancient world. And so, what Augustine's arguing against is not just that stars might have some connection to human life, but that the stars are actually pagan divinities and that those stars slash gods control human life and therefore control things like the rise and fall of Rome. And so Augustine spends a while proving to his audience that the position of the stars does not actually affect human life or communal life. And he does this with a few different arguments, which we don't really need to get to on this podcast. If you want to know all of what he says, just read the book, because it's actually pretty engaging. But one of his main arguments is with twins. He says, let's imagine Jack and Sarah are twins, born at the same time. They're not identical twins, obviously, but they're still born at the same time. Presumably, if they're only like, you know, a few seconds apart in being given birth, then presumably... They will have the same uh, horoscope, the same influence of the gods slash stars on their lives. And so we should expect that their lives turn out basically the same. But as we all know from human experience, twins almost never have identical lives, right? They almost never have the same job, drive the same car, marry the same type of person, have the same number and kind of kids. In fact, Augustine points out, didn't you notice that I said Jack and Sarah? Is there anything so fundamentally different between people as whether they're male or female and so this is one of his many arguments against astrology that it doesn't make sense because the one actually studyable effect is completely unreliable and therefore if it's unreliable in the case of twins it's unreliable in the case of everyone else and then people are just basically stealing your money and attention by telling you that, oh, they can tell you about your future from the stars, when really they're just making it all up. And that might seem like an aside, but it's not. Because, remember, this is one of his, like, ten supporting arguments about why the gods do not control the rise and fall of nations, and the gods in the persons of the stars don't control whether Rome is great or not, and therefore aren't in control of whether it fell, and therefore the worship of the Christian god can't be the reason that Rome fell.
0: And ultimately, that's all a question of destiny. So Augustine is answering the question of whether destiny is guiding us all to this certain place, you know, whether it was destiny, the god, or the fates that brought Rome into such power, and Augustine, as Gerhard just explained, Augustine says that can't be it, but then he brings up Cicero's argument about human free will and about divine foreknowledge, and this gets into interesting territory for Gerhard and myself because we've written a book about this exact thing. We're not going to get into a debate on what we each think because we have different different opinions on this. I am an open theist, which means that I believe the future is open, that there is not one set destiny for all things, and that destiny is not 100% controlled by God. Gerhard believes it is, and so does Augustine. So if you want to see what we think and more contemporary theological thoughts on this, you can read our book. Uh, Jake Robbie actually wrote the other part of it, so it's the three of us discussing three different perspectives on whether and how God knows the future and what that means for us today. So we'll set that aside and move on to what Augustine thinks. He brings in Cicero, and Cicero is argues that foreknowledge denies the possibility of freedom. So if God knows that you're going to wake up in the morning and eat cereal, is it possible for you to not wake up in the morning and eat cereal? No. It's not possible for you to do something other than what God has foreseen. And so that seems to imply that there's no such thing as free will. Cicero wants to deny foreknowledge to preserve free will. And Augustine says, no, 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 that's stupid. Because your will is, in fact, the thing that makes you desire cereal and eat it. What God foresees is your will. God knows that at this particular moment in time, you are going to desire some cornflakes, and so you will act on your own desire. This is not caused by God. It's caused by your will. And cause and effect are important things for Augustine's argument here. He wants to say that God is not directly the cause of your desires and your acting on your will. Your will is a real thing, but so is foreknowledge. And in Augustine's mind, to deny foreknowledge is blasphemy. Because a God who does not know every single thing that will happen now or in the future is not a God at all and that's okay. Augustine can be wrong. Augustine goes into a bit on this idea of necessity, and this is kind of a complex idea on what Augustine's arguing here, and this is in book 10. Are men's wills under the sway of necessity? And so Gerhard is a little bit better at explaining that. Will you take that up? Sure. Uh,
1: So there's two, um, or at least for our purposes, there's two relevant definitions of the phrase free will. Very few people want to say that free will doesn't exist. What people argue about is what the phrase free will means. And the two categories are moral free will or libertarian free will. It's not political. It's it's just a word. It just means free. <laughs> free free will. What Cicero um, is arguing against and what Tyler was talking about is assuming a definition of free will that's the libertarian free will. This is basically just what Tyler described. Because you can't not do a thing, therefore you are not free. Libertarian will is means that your free will actually gives you the ability to not do a thing or to do a thing. In the real world, in actual space-time, it could have been otherwise. That's what libertarian free will means, but there's another definition of the phrase free will, which Augustine um, argues for, and is probably best uh, described by Jonathan Edwards. In fact, this I'm just going to use an example that Edwards gives. He says, imagine that there is two prisoners, and one of the prisoners is chained to a wall, and he's I don't know committed treason or something. And he's chained to a wall and his king stands in the other room and says, if only you come out to me and kneel before me and repent, then I will forgive you. But he, And he wants to. He's just chained to a wall, so he can't. It is wrong to say that that person has the freedom to repent and that there's something morally problematic about the king there. But imagine another scenario. There is a man who is not chained up but he is such a diehard rebel such a treasonous person against the king and hates the king so much that he also cannot come out and repent before the king not because he is changed by an external thing but by his own internal motivations he is free as far as external circumstances go but he is bound by his own will and so in another very real sense which edwards calls the a moral sense Is the second prisoner free to repent? Well, yes and no. He has the ability to, but he's bound by his own will. And so this is what um, the second definition of free will, the moral free will, means in a very short statement. The moral free will is just the ability to do that which you desire to do.
0: And Augustine ends this section with a good summary of what he's arguing. He says the fact that God foreknew that a man would sin does not make a man sin. And he goes on, a man does not sin unless he wills to sin. And if he had willed not to sin, then God would have foreseen that refusal. So the person has the moral ability to choose one way or the other, and God simply knows in advance which one the person will choose of their own will. Now, what does this have to do with Rome's rise and fall? Uh, He's still talking about kind of the direction of events in the world. It's not the gods that made Rome rise and fall. It's not the alignment of the stars and the fates and these astrological things that made Rome rise and fall. It's not even Purely human free will that made Rome rise and fall. It's ultimately the sovereign God that gave Rome permission to rise and fall. Which gets us into the next section. uh, This is broadly speaking, the next section that Augustine jumps into, which is virtue and God's permission to let more or less virtuous people. Uh, attain power and prestige gerhard take it away so
1: augustine has mixed feelings about rome and about traditional roman society on the one hand he says all they really cared about was being awesome was having glory having everyone think they're super super cool and that's not good that's bad it's bad to be proud it's bad to just want everyone to like you and that being the most important end. But it's not the worst thing you could do. It's better to have an insatiable appetite for other people's respect than to uh, have an insatiable appetite to, like, murder them and drink their blood. Um, there, there are degrees of these things. So Augustine says, because the Romans were totally consumed by a less bad fault, God looked down at them and saw their free actions and said, okay, I'll, I'll reward that within limits. I'm not going to reward it with like eternal life or something, but I'll give them a big empire um, because they're not bad. I mean, they're better than the barbarians who, and I mean, this is not me talking. This is Augustine talking. He thinks that Roman civilized society is like more, you know, orderly and good and wholesome than the barbarians where it's all just murder and kill and slaughter. In Augustine's explanation of it, God looks down and says, well, I'd rather the world be filled with people like the Romans, who are at least kind of okay, than with the barbarians who are just killing and marauding everywhere. Because they can keep their basest appetites in check because of this not-as-bad vice, I'm going to make them the international superpowers. He says that because Roman society was kind of good, it's being rewarded for that in this life with empire. So it's not the gods, it's not the fates, it's not destiny, it's actually the true God, and he's actually rewarding moral action, even though it's not eternal life.
0: So Augustine actually brings in scripture to support his point. He says this is the kind of thing that Jesus was talking about when he says of The Pharisees and such people that they have received their reward. The Pharisees and Sadducees were well enough. They were virtuous insofar as the earthly city. They were better than barbarians. They were part of a society which worshipped the one true God, even. And they followed the moral codes of their society to a great extent. And so they received their reward in full, It's just that their reward was not eternal life. Their reward was temporal, perhaps financial, perhaps just uh, prestige in this life. And Augustine says that these are, in fact, gifts from God. Uh, But he says, no one can have true virtue without true piety, that is, without true worship of the true God. And that virtue, which is employed in the service of human glory, is not true virtue. So the virtue of the Romans, these people who are pursuing glory from other people, that's not true virtue. But he says, still, those who are not citizens of the eternal city, which the holy scriptures call the city of God, are of more service to the earthly city when they possess even that sort of virtue than if they are without it. Basically, like Gerhard was saying, God looks down on the earth and says, I'd rather it be this bad than even worse. <laughs> so I will let someone like Rome rise to power, so that they can give some semblance of virtue to the world. And Augustine even says this is a virtue which even Christians can learn from. So he's not saying that uh, this sort of virtue is worthless. He says, look at the amount of self-sacrifice look at the amount of care that they have for their earthly city we should have this sort of passion for the eternal city to an even greater extent Um, and he says that we shouldn't boast in our efforts and our sacrifices that we give for the eternal city because you can see the same sort of sacrifices and sometimes even greater sacrifices for people who care for their earthly city
1: Think about how much Alexander Hamilton sacrificed for his country and his work. And that was just because he just wanted to get his shot. Like, he just wanted everyone to think he was super cool. You should be even, even more active for the gospel. Yeah. That's basically what Augustine says.
0: Yeah. He, he brings up the fact that, apparently, I just thought this was really interesting. This warrior put on his armor and rode his horse off the edge of a cliff because the gods told their emperor that they needed to sacrifice the thing that meant most to them in order to gain the favor of the gods. And the thing that meant most to this society was their warriors. So this guy willingly put on his armor and rode a horse off a cliff. And Augustine says, you know, the, the martyrs, the Christian martyrs did something similar so we can't boast in the fact that we do these things, because even people do these things for their earthly city. And they're not receiving a reward at the end of this. The martyrs are. Be careful about thinking that your sacrifice is somehow, in worldly terms, going to get you more. And that's all for book five, I think. Do you have anything? Yeah, no,
1: that's good.
0: In book six, Augustine gets into an argument that for me at least, was somewhat complex and I had to read through some of it a couple of times and then before we recorded this I hashed it all out with Gerhard to make sure I understood it. So no shame if this was a little bit over your head, it was for me. But basically there's this guy named Varro and he's a pagan philosopher and Augustine thinks this guy is really smart. He's written more than anyone. We don't even understand how he has the time to write because of all the time he spends reading. But then we don't even understand how he spends all this time reading because of all the books that he's written. The guy is just a... a he, he even calls him a savant, I think, at yeah. one point. So he's brilliant. And Varro, in his treatises on religion, he writes of the pagan gods and uh, the different ways in which society worships these gods, and he says there are three kinds of theology. There's mythical theology, natural theology, and civic theology. Uh, Mythical is what you see in the plays, and Augustine has already spent a lot of time talking about the plays. It's essentially the acting out of the acts of the gods, the horrible, debauched, Actions of the gods where they murder and rape and pillage and get in petty little squabbles. But Varro admits, and remember, Varro's a pagan, uh, he's a worshiper of these gods. Varro says, That's just for entertainment. It's just a way that we get some pleasure and uh, we have a good laugh, and don't worry about that. That's not a place where we get true theology. It's not real, it's just fiction so Varro seems like a pretty level-headed guy. Civic theology is, think of it like going to church. You know, you get the Eucharist, you get uh, baptized, you listen to a sermon and sing some worship songs. It's the stuff that you do in the religious community, but in these religious communities, Augustine says, you're not just doing, you know, morally dubious things. You're doing bad things. I mean, look at the there's a god called Bacchus, and he is the god of, in the words of my mythology professor, Bacchus was the god of drunken orgies. And so the worshipers of Bacchus would have these celebrations called the Bacchanalian Festivals, and it was essentially a drunken orgy. My professor actually said the best comparison that he's been able to find in modern days is something like uh, a rave or a dance club where there's... He said in these festivals they would beat their drums in these pulses until everyone, it sort of became kind of a hive mind, and everyone is just kind of one with each other, and they get drunk, and they have sex, and do all of this debauched things. How is this any different, morally speaking, than what goes on in the plays, is what Augustine asks. So Augustine says that these distinctions between mythical and civil are actually not quite that different, and he, in fact, Augustine says we should just say that there are only two different kinds, civil and natural, because mythical is ultimately just a part of the worship of the civil community. So there's really no difference between civil and mythical, but Augustine does think that there is a theology worth discussing, and that's natural theology.
1: So after Augustine's talked about uh, Varro's two categories of civil and mythical theology, and Augustine has problematized Varro's distinction between mythical and civil and said, no, 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 you can't trust, you can't trust anything you read in the plays, and you can't trust, like, what the priests do in the temples. They're both completely suspect, because they're both morally horrible. But, Augustine says, Varro gives us this third category, as Tyler mentioned, of natural theology, Um, and what all that means is the theology that's practiced by philosophers, people like Plato and... Cicero and Seneca and whatnot. He leaves us on a little little cliffhanger there uh, because he says alright, that's enough for book 6. I'm going to send this to the printer and uh, I'll I'll get back to you shortly. And so, on our next episode next week, we'll talk about Augustine's argument in relation to Varro's third category of natural philosophy.
0: So, just to recap, in book 5, Augustine says... Rome's rise and fall is not about the gods that you worship. They don't have the power to do this. It's not about the alignment of the stars. That's absurd. It's easily disprovable. It's not about purely human free will. It's about the fact that God is leading the world in a certain direction and God allows things to happen for God's own reasons. God has allowed Rome to prosper and then allowed it to fall. And then in Book 6, he re-emphasizes, because uh, Augustine doesn't think an argument is finished until he's said it ten times, he re-emphasizes the fact that it's not the gods that have uh, helped Rome in any way, and he gets a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of how theology works in relation to the city and its prosperity and in morality, most importantly. Note, everything keeps coming back to morality for Augustine. The prosperity of a city is inseparably connected to uh, morality. So, tune in next week. That's all for uh, part three of our read through Augustine's City of God. As always, if you'd like to support us, go to uh, iTunes and rate and review us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter financially if you want to support us and help us to keep being able to do this, giving you free content check out patristicapress.com, and you can find all of the books that we print through our press.